Today on The Black Goat, we talk about giving talks and a letter about how alt-acts are perceived by traditional academics. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullett and Samin Vizier. And I wanted to ask you about something. So I recently had to buy a flashlight. And the, here's the backstory. So I have this, I had this flashlight. It's like a little pocket flashlight that I really liked. It's like takes one AAA battery. It's like three inches long. It fits in your pocket. And I've had this pot flashlight for a long time. And it died because the battery leaked and killed the flashlight. And so I needed to buy a new flashlight. And... I do this thing sometimes when I buy things where I start, I think like, okay, I'm going to buy this online because Eugene is, you know, I mean, you can obviously buy flashlights here, but whatever. There's like, you know, it's a medium sized town. There's better flashlights online, blah, blah, blah. Um, And I, I ended up going down this rabbit hole and I swear I probably like, I spent days, if, if I added up all the time I spent researching what flashlight to buy it was like hours and hours and hours spread over several days to buy what ended up being a ten dollar flashlight part of um, me is like tempted to ask you what's so special about this flashlight no but i know <laughs> that i don't care about <laughs> <laughs> but i care so much i could tell you all about this, this flashlight this is a huge individual difference between us i would never ever do that first of all it would never occur to me to like not just go to like the grocery store or like the dollar store to get a flashlight and i would yeah i would never ever think to like research it is this something that like is there something special about flashlights like do they (laughs) fall into like a category of interesting things to you that you're like i really want to get the right one or is this like anything you buy you want to i don't have i don't have a special thing about flashlights i mean the the thing is that it's like the flashlight I had before, which I think I also probably researched. And the reason I couldn't just buy a new one of that is they discontinued it. But um, it was, it's just really well made. It was like the, like when you hold it, it had this like kind of heft to it. The material was really solid. When you turned it on, I feel on, like you turned this like, into a conversation about the flashlight anyway. <laughs> I, no, I'm serious. Like, you know how, you know, it's just like it it feels really like well built and and you know and it it had it was like a tiny flashlight but it was like super bright so it was really useful because in in Eugene you know like especially like you go to somebody's house at night and there's no street lights and you know you're trying not to step in a giant pool of mud which happens all the time so you want a light and phone you know nowadays like you have a light on your phone but those aren't very good so it's like i love having just a little i feel like stick in my coat pocket or whatever i'm like the opposite of sanjay in terms of research but but similar in terms of online shopping so like i'll i'll buy a lot of things online mostly because in davis i don't have to ever use my car and so i'm not gonna like get in my car just to go to target to get something so i'm gonna buy it online instead but i will buy like the first thing that's suggested to me and i don't really like i'll buy shampoo and then, like, when it comes, if it's not the shampoo I usually use, I'll be like, okay, I guess that's the shampoo I'm using now. Or, like, same with tea or whatever, which means, like, I'm never – I can't really get into anything or have, like, a developed taste or preference for anything because I'm just – I just don't have the patience. So I – yeah, I, I – so it's not just flashlights. I do this for a lot of things. But what, you know, what's also – I mean, it's kind of interesting because you end up – so oftentimes when I'm researching things, I'll end up in, like – forums where people are talking about this thing and it's so fascinating to just see that there there's like a whole subculture of people who are into flashlights like there's an entire subreddit on reddit that's like Somebody our flashlights gonna create like a, a like a dubbed version of this that's just you talking about flashlights the whole time <laughs> <laughs> but no but you find that this is like everything there's like someone and there's all these people that they're like they're into, you know, and I mean, this is way beyond what I would cared about, but it's like a lot of people who are super into flashlights are talking about what's the best flashlight. So you sort of find out like, oh, if I get this one rather than that one, it lasts longer. Or it's got this feature that I never would have thought of to look for. But like everyone's like, it's super annoying if you get one of the flashlights that works like this. And I'm like, yeah, that would be super annoying. Now I know I can avoid those flashlights. <laughs> but it's also just like it's a, it's also just aside from the pra- practicalities of like 
buying something like a flashlight, it's such a fascinating window into like people getting really deeply into like specific obscure things whether it's flashlights or or anything else like pretty much anything you want to buy probably you can find I mean this is especially true I think of sort of techie things but like you know anything that involves like technology or electronics or whatever but there's just somewhere online there's a bunch of people who know an absurd amount of, the, of stuff about whatever it is you want to buy. And and so I sort of get sucked into this and I'm like, oh, should I subscribe to the Flashlight subreddit? I'm like, no, I'm not going to turn into one of those people. But it's like, I'm glad they exist. I'm glad the example is a flashlight as well because I think like if you were talking about like a computer or even like a microphone or something like that, I would be like, yeah, I sort of, I sort of get how people could be into that. But if I've never thought twice i've never like used a flashlight and been like this could be better like i would there are things i would modify about this <laughs> which i th- is probably like the healthy approach to it right because it i mean this is so this is the like it's interesting but it's also this is the downside is like i sometimes for stuff that i my life it really won't make much difference in my quality of life i get like sucked into things and and that's my difficulty is i have trouble drawing the line of saying like like when we started the podcast, I did a lot of research about microphones, yeah, right. microphones, and I was like, okay, this is important because this is like a you know non-trivial purchase, and this is going to matter for stuff and whatever. So I'm going to like go in, and and it sort of makes sense. There's communities for that because there's lots of people do audio production and podcasts, whatever. Um, so it's but, like that felt like time well spent. But like right. the flashlight, it's like it kind of has to be like intrinsically enjoyable for me to even possibly justify how much time I spent researching a flashlight. I was going to ask that because I was thinking like even with the microphones and stuff like that, I was like, do you, do you do that out of a sense of obligation or do you do it out of enjoyment? Because it would be like I would really have to force myself to do the research necessary to be like informed when buying something. And I really don't like doing it, actually. There's like no pull for me. I can't. I'm trying to think if there are categories where there might be like, I don't know, like, like scotch or something I could like be interested in it or like people get into that. But it's pretty hard for me to imagine like doing the online research. I really hate online shopping. I buy almost nothing online. Well, let me ask about because Alexa, you just got this awesome jean jacket that we were just talking about. Hell yeah, I did. You should totally post an instagram picture of you and your new jean jacket but i already um, have a selfie that i took yesterday morning oh that's got to go up on the instagram then but like how did how did you because it's an awesome jean jacket it's not just like your standard levi's whatever that you would get it's got this like really cool leopard print collar and all that like how did you end up buying that i'm really glad that you asked this um so last weekend in birmingham there was an event called the punk rock flea market Um, And so it's like a bunch of different vendors that are set up at a brewery in Birmingham. And one of the vendors, well, several of the vendors are like thrift stores. Um, So I bought my jean jacket, which is a regular jean jacket with like a leopard or cheetah print um, collar and cuffs at one of those. Um, So I think it's like maybe the antithesis of online shopping. Were you, but like, were you... Were you act- actively looking for a jean jacket or actively shopping, or were you literally just walking past? I was not at all actively. Like... I already have two jean jackets. <laughs> 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 I was definitely not looking for a jean jacket, but I saw it and it spoke to me. So this was just totally a spur of the moment thing. There was no research at all. You weren't like, I need to get a fabulous jean jacket, not one of those like other kind of jean jackets, and there was nothing like that. I think I like... saw it and I was like sort of like haha that jean jacket is funny and then i put it on and i was like hmm (laughs) kind of like it and i was uh, with people that encouraged me so you guys aren't gonna ask me where i got my beautiful hoodie (laughs) (laughs) i feel like like 90 percent of the things that samin especially like shirts that samin owns are bought at like gift shops or restaurants slash bars yeah, so Samin, you, mm-hmm. I mean, I, okay, like, Samin, you're probably the most practical, of, right? So I'm, I'm like, Is Samin more practical Alexa's... than me, though, on this dimension? I also, push so, back a little bit. I, I think so, because I think, like, you saw something cool. It wasn't necessarily practical, but you were just like, that's awesome, where I feel like Samin is like, 
I get cold a lot, so I should buy something I can put on my torso. That's what you would think. Exactly. (laughs) I I was at the airport, and I was cold, and that's um, when I bought this sweatshirt. (laughs) <laughs> uh-uh, I don't know. Some people like buy like a stuffed animal somewhere, like something that's totally that's useless. True. I'm getting better at that though. I do sometimes. Yeah, but yeah, that's true. But I won't research it. So I mean, I'm like, yeah, I'm more like Alexa in that I'll just no. decide on the spot to buy it or not. But I don't. But I also don't really care how much I like it that much. It's just yeah, most of the time, not always. So what what's the motivation to buy the stuffed animal then? Like where where does that come from? Um, I mean, I'm trying to think of what Alexa might be referring to. I have bought a couple of stuffed animals in the last few years. One is our lab mascot. It's just this weird. I think it's like a rat or something. It was just so weird. And I was traveling and I brought it back <laughs> for my lab. Um, I, I am a sucker for things with animals on them. So I will sometimes buy things just because there's an animal on it. But usually mm-hmm. it's like a piece of clothing that I will wear a lot. Yeah, I think I most often see you buy t-shirts. Um, but you do, yeah, you do have an odd number of stuffed animals. And you have those giant stuffed animals. <laughs> yeah, although I got rid of them. I'm starting to get rid of my stuff now oh, for okay. when I moved to Australia. So I'm filling my trash can every week. And so a lot of the stuffed animals are gone. Well, if if you need... If you need a flashlight that is really small so you can pack <laughs> it and bring it to Australia easily, the Lumentop EDC-01 is a, is a very good choice. How much did your nine, flashlight nine, cost, Sanjay? It was like $9 on Amazon. Okay, all right. It was like an absurd amount of research for this, uh, this, this like extremely trivial purchase. But yeah, anyway. We should put, I, I might actually put a link to the Lumen Top EDC-01 in the show notes just because. Oh, I like, definitely think you should. <laughs> I feel like my, my work should benefit other people. Listeners, if you need a flashlight. Uh, but I only research like AAA flashlights. There's a whole, anyway, let's not get into that. I would should say we do that our you letter should before I... start like a side <laughs> blog that is just like you, like doing all the research on like really, really mundane purchases. But I bet there are many of those that already exist. Pro- probably yeah yeah no i'm i am it's sort of like i mean there are like commercial websites well there's like wirecutter which does actual reviews of things where they actually buy the products and test them but there are like websites where all they do is aggregate reviews and like they read and interpret reviews from amazon or whatever i guess i could be one of those but yeah i probably that's probably a step too far even for me yeah <laughs> i think you'd be great at it for the record uh all right, well, let's, uh, let's move on from flashlights and do our letter. Okay, sounds good. Dear Goats, I've been listening to your podcast for a long time, and I enjoy being part of uh, the psych science community on Twitter. A year ago, after completing my PhD, I took a job as a military contractor. I work at a research institute, am engaged with the literature, and use the scientific method to conduct my work and brief military stakeholders. However, I do not live by the academic calendar, teach students, or have the freedom to pursue an independent line of study. My work encourages me to publish and supports me in doing so, but I do not face the typical pressures of publish or perish academic career. Typically, the conversation about alt-ac careers revolves around how students get them and why academia isn't doing enough to prepare graduates for them. However, as a new alt-ac looking in, I'd like to know, how are alt-acts perceived by established academic psychologists? Sincerely, the guy who once mistakenly confused sheep with goats on the Great British Baking Show tweeted at Samin about it, was anonymously shamed on this podcast about it, justifiably so because adults should really probably know their barnyard animals, and now has an extremely strong grasp on the differences between sheep and goats. Um, so this, this letter is notable in part for the longest signature that we, that we have ever received. Um, um, by the way, that's not an invitation to make this a competition. Today, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, so, yeah, what do you what do you guys think about alt acts? Um, so maybe some questions could be like, how how would you would you see a paper differently if it was written by somebody who was not at a university? Um, do you. Uh, yeah, do you evaluate people's work differently depending on... I don't um, see affiliation, Alexa. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I feel like... I, I'm curious what you what the two of you think. I, I feel like there's been a, 
a shift since I was in graduate school and not enough of a shift, but a shift at least in the right direction. So I feel like once upon a time, the the vibe among, you know, the, the letter says established academic psychologists. And so, you know, let's let's say sort of like tenured and beyond academic psychologists. I feel like back when I was in graduate school, there was very much uh, a vibe of you like especially directed at phd students like you will go into an r1 academic job or whatever else you might do is settling and worthless uh-huh. um right and and in particular i think the 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 implicit and sometimes explicit hierarchy was you know r1 academic job at the top um, some other thing that at least was in academia was like very much second tier and then, you know, if you went, God forbid, you go into something that involves marketing or making money. Huh. And I, I, I bet if military contractor had come up in that context, it would have been the same thing. Like, that's that's an abuse of our, you know, all the time we it's invested. Like, and why are you like doing this evil? Yeah, it's dirty. It's like, yeah. that was really, I think, uh, and, and to varying degrees. So I don't want to blame everybody of that era. But that was, uh, you know, there, I'm sure there were specific people who were like, exceptions to some or all of that. But that was very much the vibe. Um, I feel like that's still I'm curious what you two think. I feel like that's still plenty around, but that there's been a lot of movement in a much better direction of, I think the, the probably the, the, for me, what I think is probably the modal uh, sort of view is people will explicitly say, well, that's fine. But there's kind of still sort of a little bit of a holding back from a lot of people like, uh, implicitly, it's like, that's fine if you got to settle or whatever. Um, and so I, I feel like there's also a lot more variance in the positive direction. There are more people who will be vocal about the fact that that is every bit as legitimate of a career choice as anything else and, and really mean it. Um, but it, we still have a ways to go as a, as a field. Uh, what do you two think? Yeah, I, I don't think that I see... So that was certainly pretty similar to the hierarchy that I learned, whether it was explicit or implicit during grad school. Um, although I think that maybe like alt acts always took sort of like a peripheral, less like within the hierarchy role. So definitely like R1 and then like whatever is like going down from there, like whatever is like less research emphasis, more teaching emphasis was what I learned. (laughs) Really? Yeah. It was like the more teaching you do, the less prestigious it is. It was like a pretty direct. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Um, And then, like, these other careers that were sort of, like, had connections to academia but were off to the side, I don't don't think that I learned that they were, like, lower prestige necessarily, although I do think that I learned this idea that they're, like, especially if it's, like, marketing or business school-y, that it's, like, you're a sellout and, um, I don't know, you're going to be, like, using your psychology knowledge to, I don't know, uh, like, nudge people to buy products or something like that. Um... So, but in general, I think that was like a more mysterious category and also something that as graduate students, we, we often sort of like talked about in a very like uninformed, um, sort of grass is greener kind of way. Like, oh, if we don't get academic jobs, maybe we'll just be like consultants, whatever the hell that means. Right. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think, um, but I think that those things are changing and also i mean i know samin was sort of like joking when she said that she doesn't see um see institution or whatever um but i don't i don't think that um my perceptions of people's work would be affected really by um by whether they were in an academic institution or not in fact i might almost be more impressed by somebody's work who isn't in an academic institution because I feel like it's sometimes harder to come across like the resources you need and um and yeah it might be just more challenging in general to be producing research from a non-academic position um I'm not sure how I would evaluate somebody who wanted to like apply for a job from that position I think I mean I think the boring answer to that is that just that it depends on the details 
Yeah, I think that there's still a lot of negative perceptions of people outside of academia, like among my colleagues at R1s. I don't know if it's different at different kinds of academic institutions. Um, but yeah, I think there's still a lot of negativity. I mean, I think it's becoming less okay to say it out loud, which is maybe an improvement. But my guess is, yeah, if the question is about established academics, I think the perception is still pretty negative, although it is shifting pretty fast, I think. And and there are more people, like Sanjay said, being vocal about that, it's, that we should support that. Some of it, I think, is jealousy, too, to be honest. I feel like sometimes it's like the academics wanting to justify that they're more noble somehow by taking less money or something like that. Um, so I wouldn't take all of the negativity too seriously. Some of it, I think, is pretty petty, right. a lot of it. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of like, if I read a paper, I think it would depend if the paper, if I felt like a potential conflict of interest, then I think I would, I, I haven't thought it through, but I think my knee jerk reaction would be to trust it more from an academic institution than from an institution that might have a vested interest in, in that field or that market or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like the. The, the shift has been, there's been more of a, I, I feel like there's sort of two two areas where the shift is happening. And it's been more in one than the other. So so there's been more of a shift in terms of viewing it as a legitimate career option. And I think a lot of that is driven by established academics have graduate students and they recognize that the job market is extremely tough and that not all of the not of all of their own graduate students who they think are qualified are going to be able to get jobs that that others and so i think this is like i think there's a like with a lot of things like with open science there's a humanizing effect of seeing your graduate students engage with something that often is kind of a pathway to to sort of more established people kind of breaking open and so so things like you know conferences inviting exhibitors from you know the tech industry and other places to come recruit at the conference and things like that and, and people being more supportive of that. I think it's, it's shifting more in there. Where I see less of a shift and and it's hard to read why is is in the scholarly sense of um, one viewing I mean part of it is just that there isn't a whole lot at least in the areas that I work in of people outside truly completely outside of academia trying to publish like people who are working at, I mean, nonprofits to some extent, but especially at for-profit businesses. There's not much of that. Um, and and then, and but like, I don't think there's a lot of like, I think when things come along, people are like, okay, yeah, maybe that's fine. And, and I think sometimes conflict of interest comes up. But I think what people are missing out on is the possibility that this could not just be a thing that we accept, but that with a lot of risky risks of downsides there's also a lot of potential upsides of having people who are working in more applied settings um reporting back on what they find when they're you know applying theories that were developed academically or reporting back on the theories and ideas that they themselves are developing in the context of their work mm -hmm. um academia doesn't do especially academic psychology doesn't do enough applied and translational work and this is a setting where a lot of that is going on and it's not, you know, we're not actively encouraging people to report back what they're finding as much as we could be. Yeah. Um, this yeah. also sort of reminds me of our, um, the episode where we talked about like critics um, and who would make good critics of a field. Um, and in some ways, maybe alt acts are in a uniquely good position to do that, um, especially like as this letter writer says that they basically they do research and they're familiar with the process and they publish but they don't face the same pressures of publish or perish that a typical academic would face um, and that might be sort of a nice position to be in where you um, you know how things work but you don't necessarily have the same sort of like biases and motivations that um, the rest of the field has so that's yeah that's kind of a unique position yeah it reminds me Thinking back to, uh, this was a while ago, our, our episode with Paul Litvak, where he was talking about working at Airbnb. Uh -huh. And, you know, I remember uh, he was talking about, we should link this in the show notes for people that might have missed that. It was a great interview, and he was talking about how 
a lot of what he learned from sort of JDM research was relevant, um, but also he was doing, I remember, if I remember right, I think he said that one of the things he was working on was this issue of prejudice in like Airbnb selection. Um, I don't remember oh, yeah, specifically yeah, yeah. what exactly he was that. working on, but but you know, there's this issue of you know the uh, if you have a profile picture, the the race of the person in the profile picture, either as a host or as a guest, can sometimes like make people you know sort of act out prejudiced behavior, and and you know he was and it's like that. What a you know I I don't know how much like Airbnb. I mean, this is where there's like risks because Airbnb isn't going to want to publish research that makes them look bad. And so it's hard to know sort of like what's the right way to engage on that. But this is someone that's doing, trying, I think from Paul's perspective, very much in good faith, um, trying to do applied prejudice reduction. And how cool would it be if there was more open communication um, between social psychology and, and what people like that are, are working on? Mm-hmm. Well, do do you either of you have anything anything more to add for the letter writer? I would just say I think this is something we need to work on to like try to change the stereotypes around. Well, even just calling them alt careers is signals something, and I think I think we have come a long way, but there's still a lot more progress we could make. Cool. Well, uh, thank you. I'm not going to repeat your signature, but thank mm-hmm. you, letter writer, <laughs> for, yeah. for your great letter. And uh, um, yeah, if you are listening and you would like to contact us, if you'd like to email us, you can email letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. Uh, you can find us on uh, Twitter at blackgoatpod. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash blackgoatpod. You can find us on Instagram, where Alexa maybe is going to post a selfie with her awesome new jean jacket. Uh, <laughs> we're Instagram.com slash BlackGoatPod. Uh, you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify and wherever podcasts are sold in your town or online shopping. Um, and, and speaking of reviews, you can leave us a review, and that's a way that uh, people find us. So we, we always appreciate when people send us feedback or, or share that feedback with others. Um, so our, our main topic today, we wanted to talk about giving talks. This is something that is a pretty big part of academia. It's a pretty big part of the, the work that we do. It's something um, that we do in a range of settings, a range of audiences, a range of formats, and it's not something we've talked about before. Um, uh, you know, in terms of like types of talks, right? There's there's brown bags that are very informal that might be to a lab or to like an area in your department. There's colloquia um, that that might be longer talks. There's conference talks, which are often the sort of standard symposium in psychology tends to be somewhere in the range of on the short side twelve, on the long side twenty minutes. Um, job talks, which have a whole different set of stakes around them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, we, we, we talk mm. a lot. <laughs> We've covered job talks, I think, in the context of like job interviews. So maybe we'll focus more on the other kinds right. of talks, but point out when things are different for job talks. Yeah, so I don't know what's uh, I mean, one of the more frequent kinds, maybe a good starting point, is kind of brown bags and informal talks, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's a thing. We, in my department, in my area, we're... we're trying to to get our graduate students to do these more um because i think it's a really good learning experience to do them um you know i've seen them go really well and i've seen them be kind of meh um and a lot a lot of that depends on the audience although there are definitely things that as the presenter you can do to kind of make it worth more what are i mean if you're doing a brown bag or advising someone what are the things that you would do to make that sort of work well yeah I was just gonna say like I'd be really curious to hear what kinds of advice you give people like what kinds of advice you give to students about how to make a talk really good I think one thing I would advise is is give a lot of talks because I do think it gets a lot easier I remember my first brown bag I was so nervous and I I practiced so many times and then I gave the talk and I literally like you know when you're so nervous that your mem- you stop forming memories? And I don't know if this is actually a thing, but like as soon as the talk yeah. ended, I was like, what just happened? Like I had no memories from the talk. And it's funny to think about that now. Because now when I'm like talking to my students, 
and they're getting ready for their first brown bag I have like very poor perspective taking of what that was like yeah me too oh my god I know it's terrible um yeah give a lot of talks is good advice I remember um Samin advising me before I gave my job talk to practice it a million times um and I think yeah I think people especially if you're new to giving talks it's easy to sort of um underestimate how far uh practice goes even though I think practicing talks is like the most awkward thing ever um yeah when I when I see people give talks that I like the the talks that I tend to like the most these days are um talks that presentationally are not like very flashy but they have like a lot of I think very heavily like example-based talks I like a lot um and then I mean obviously like people who are just like compelling speakers it's hard to ignore that um or people who are funny I think one thing that's really hard to know what to do is is how much of responsibility do you have to go into the detail of like the methods and also the like qualifications around the results and things like that because I think there's this tension right that we enjoy talks more if they're like not super nuanced and like you don't like give the meta talk of like first I was going to do this but then I changed my mind and did that I see that's a common mistake I see early career people making in talks is giving the meta talk and so we don't want that necessarily but then maybe we do need to know about studies you tried that didn't work out or analyses you tried that don't support Mm -hmm. the one you really want us to see and things like that I think that's a real challenge is like how much do you how what's the standard for a talk versus a paper about what you owe in terms of transparency and completeness and so on and obviously that can be really different for a 45 minute talk than a 12 minute talk yeah I I would say I mean you know I mentioned brown bags before like I think one mistake that people sometimes make is they think because it's a less formal format and this comes up with other informal formats too they think they have to prepare less or they can Mm -hmm. be more flexible and so you know one thing and you know is the what I mean what you're saying about like what detail you go into and and what dead ends you talk about you may make different decisions for a brown bag but it still has to be a decision you considered and were intentional about um and so you know something that I think people sometimes lose track of is how much like Gricean norms apply to talks as as well as papers like this idea, the principle of relevance, like if I'm telling you something, it's because you're supposed to know it. Um, And so if I'm telling you about this detail, it's because it's important for you to know this detail. And it's because, and in an informal talk, that's an interactive, like a brown bag, the implicit signal is like, I'm telling you this because I'm inviting questions and discussion about it. And so something that I see happen in, in, in brown bags and also in, in talk formats, you know, in, in psychology, our norm for more formal talks is less interruption. But if you, if you give a talk at a business school or at an economics department or something, the norms are much more, even in kind of larger settings, they interrupt a lot with questions. And so you should be kind of thinking ahead about like, what are the things that you actually want people to react to? What mm-hmm. are the things you want people to ask questions about or give you feedback about? And structure your talk so that those things get more time and attention and stand out. Um, and so if you want feedback about your construct definitions, then spend more time talking about your construct definitions. And if you don't, you can explicitly say in an interactive talk, like, this is what I'm working from and what I'm really interested in. Now, like, just tell them what you want. Like, this uh, this is, like, well-established in the literature. So, you know, person who's had a 40-year grudge with, you know, uh, you know, whatever this construct is, like, just leave me alone mm-hmm. and take it as a given and, and you know, go on. Um, and, I mean, you can't be pushy. You can't be aggressive about that. And sometimes people will need to raise those things, and it's actually important. Um, but I think that's – I think the, like – a mistake I see people make in all of those interactive formats is they, they're not prepared in that way. And then they also, they think that what they're supposed to do is appear open at, to whatever comes at them and let the conversation flow. And so saying like, you can interrupt me anytime with questions. And then when people do, they keep answering, even when it's that one person who's perseverating on this issue and everyone else is like, just shut the fuck up and move on. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and so you also have to kind of like control and direct the conversation. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you two describe like your 
approach to giving talks as thinking about what what do you want to talk with people about or what do you want what do people need to know um I think the times when I give let's say like my graduate students or something like that criticism on talks it's usually that they have like a specific format in their mind of what a talk should be like and they sort of like fill in the blanks and I mean that's not a bad approach to a talk especially when you don't have a lot of experience um but sometimes a lot of those details are like very unnecessary to understanding the bigger picture and to a sparking conversation and you can for like a lot of the details you can fill them in later if somebody has a specific question about how something was done um but also that mentality so I I tend to even still get nervous about talks especially certain kinds of talks like talks at conferences despite the fact that I've given many many talks at this point um and if I think about them as like a chance to have a conversation about things that I'm really interested in I feel less nervous um than if I think of it as like a a presentation or whatever I don't know if other people have that experience yeah and I think related to that another thing I see people do is being too reluctant to give their opinions in talks or like state their position on something so they yeah they feel like they need to be objective or like defend everything and it's like you can say I use this measure because I think it's the best measure I'm happy to like go into why but people want to know what you think not just like as if this robot did this research but especially in a talk relative to a paper like that's the place to use the first person use your voice and and talk about talk about it as your research um which is weird to say because we also like don't yeah. want people to be too attached to their results but the but the methods and design are yours and you chose them for a reason and people want to hear about what your values are your views on the different options and and why you picked that one and so on so I feel like often when I come out of talks disappointed it's because I'm like but I don't know what the person really thinks or like were they surprised by their result were they like yeah would would they have rather done this different study but they couldn't for other reasons and so this was what they settled on or like what was the kind of rationale and what was their interest in doing this study and in the result Mm -hmm. yeah and sort of related to that there's a particular especially like people who are less experienced approach that I sometimes see not not infrequently which is not only are they not giving their own opinion but they've internalized the criticisms and they've they've uh they've gone beyond what you so what you should do is like anticipate criticisms and have the stuff in there one so that you're being in good faith if someone has a problem with let's say a method you're stating that you use that method so they know you know and and whatever uh, and and you know making that transparent and sort of thinking about how to defend your choices and all that that's fine but what what often happens is like I've seen this where you know someone will for example they'll be doing a study where like the outcome is you know it's it's an emotional response and every time they say the outcome they'll say self-reported emotion the effect of the manipulation on self-reported emotion the effect and mm-hmm. and what the the actual framing is is that they're they made a design decision that self-report was the best way to measure emotion in mm-hmm. this context whether it was on practical or theoretical grounds so you should say when you're describing your methods of course this was self-report and you might explain why but then they'll go through the rest of the talk and they'll kind of like because they'll be like oh i know there's this big criticism of self-report emotion and so I have to like, you know, I, I have to remind people every time. And I think there, there's the, and it, it, it starts to feel almost like self-punishing. Like, I think there's a defensive version of that, but there's also a like, I don't have confidence in my choices. Yeah. And so I think the balance is like, you say what choices you made and why you made them, but then you don't keep repeating the criticism, unless it's relevant, unless it's something you, you need to talk about. And I think in that particular example, it might be something specific to that community too, where like, I don't know, I'm not an emotion researcher, but I know that I've had to find and replace emotion with subjective emotion experience over and over again in my papers because the emotion (laughs) people are like, that's not emotion, that's your subjective experience of your emotion. I'm like, okay, fine. Oh, weird. Um, But yeah, the broader point is well taken. Well, I think, I mean, that's where you have to make, that's where it has to be a deliberate choice. Like, are you going to take a stand that, no, I'm studying emotion, or are Mm -hmm. you going to go with the side of, like, well, I'm just 
studying the subjective experience component. Like, but but I think it's 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 the, where the, you can where the person actually thinks they're studying emotion, but they say so. And this is again yeah, just yeah, one yeah. example where you you see this a lot, where people will keep repeating the they'll sort of like embed the criticism into how they talk about something right. every single time instead of using their own perspective. Yeah, if you think the broader label is appropriate, use it. But just yeah, be transparent about it and be willing to to defend that position. But don't yeah, like don't be shy about taking a position in a talk if you know what you're doing and you've thought about it. Yeah. So how do you in in either in, in a brown bag or in a format where you know where the norms are to ask a lot of questions? How do how do you approach that sort of like finding the right balance of you know going with the interactivity but also you know sort of getting to what you want to get to and keeping the room on track um my answer is probably that i don't do a good job (laughs) if somebody asks me a question i just like yeah i i probably take the approach that you were describing earlier sanjay of just like trying to be like really open to whatever questions people might ask and like being willing to go in whatever direction they want to go and not um reinforcing like the the direction or i mean i don't know i haven't had it happen where like people have totally taken over a talk that i've been trying to give um but i don't think i do a lot of like okay now back to my talk i think i get two versions of this one is the social psychologist saying whoa 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 you're studying personality this personality even exists let's like back up here what is a trait blah 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 I get that less now than I did like 10, 15 years ago, but it still happens. And the other one is same thing, but with the behavioral measures that we use. Like what if the, the act really didn't have that meaning in that context and your coders were interpreting it that way and stuff. So those things I, I feel like I have to give some time and attention to, but it can really derail the whole talk. And if you let it go on too long, you might not get to your content. So you're having to defend like an entire field or an entire method and educate people basically who have never thought of it before and are just for the first time thinking. And sometimes like what what I really want to do, but you have to do it really tactfully is say, those questions you're asking are great questions and they apply to every single other method too and every single other field too. Like how do you know the constructs you're measuring are real? How do you know that your method, you're interpreting the score correctly, all of that. So like sometimes it's a matter of like completely admitting that that's an issue and saying, I'm going to ask you to like suspend your disbelief yeah. for a minute and then we'll come back to it in the context right. of my specific results. It's really interesting that you say that because, so I haven't had that experience at a talk recently, but I have had that experience in a class that I'm teaching. Um, there's a, one of the students in my class is not in a psychology program. Um, and so he asks a lot of questions that are sort of like, uh can we even really do psychology like is there even like a point or whatever and he's pretty good natured about it but um it is something that like we could spend the entire class talking about without ever getting to like the content that um that i'm hoping to get to um and that that was that's my most recent effort at tackling that (laughs) issue is to say like okay let's decide for now to agree on some premises and then like talk from there because we can debate the premises forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting that I think I think teaching can give you a lot of experience with that kind of stuff as you get better at teaching. You encounter those situations, uh-huh. and what I think sometimes happens with like early career people is even they might have those skills, but because of the status dynamics of a talk, they don't mm-hmm. feel comfortable doing them. And I think oftentimes they underestimate how like relevant and welcome it would be because i i've been on the in the audience of talks where i'm just like oh god please tell this person to shut up they're the only person that has this obsession or whatever Mm -hmm. um never in my own department of course but elsewhere um (laughs) uh and and you know it's it's so yeah i think i think it's i think people sometimes underestimate just how much explicitly meta talking like naming what's going on like you know like you're describing saying like this is a great question it's a much broader issue you're gonna have to go with my assumptions and let's talk about it later over dinner or whatever um i think that that can be a a useful strategy and i where i've seen and this is especially i think the the highest stakes version of this is the quote-unquote informal talk on a job interview um where you know, I think some departments you give your traditional formal job talk and then you do like a chalk talk or a brown bag or an informal talk and, and absolutely like you, 
you have to sort of control and direct the conversation mm. in those settings. Mm -hmm. So how do you how do you think about like the more structured, like the the less interactive, the more which is more the norm in psychology for conferences and for colloquia and things like that. Um, like, what are some of the things you're thinking about as you're going into preparing for one of those? Hmm. I hate those. Partly because one dirty little secret about the, like, <laughs> outside speakers you see at your brown bag or colloquium is that they've given that talk a dozen times. So, like, if you invite me to give a 45-minute talk, I don't have to prepare a new talk. I've practiced it a bunch of times. I think it'll go well, et cetera. The conference talk is often you're writing a brand new talk from scratch and that's, I find that so hard. And then you're only gonna give it once and then it's gonna go in the trash and that's so sad. I don't know, yeah, how to approach them. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't have a good general <laughs> answer for that. We all like think. just don't know how to do good conference talks. No, but Sanjay, you, what do I you mean, do? Sanjay, I don't know when the last time I've seen you give a talk so I mean you give really good talks like I think of I also give I think, really bad talks my conference I, talks very I don't think lot. that that's yeah I mean I do think about your talks when I think about doing mine and I think like the some of the strengths of your talks are like you you give like a lot of examples if you're doing like a talk where you talk about your um, substantive research you give like these amazing examples like from actual participant responses you have like really really good like um, like images and quotes and things like that like I think I don't know what the broader category is but it feels like these sort of like very relatable instantiations of your work that I think is a good model um, yeah, I watched Joe Simmons give a talk recently, and I thought that he was very good at giving talks. And I think part of that is just like his personality is, um, like he's predisposes him to give really interesting talks. So have um, a good personality and study inherently interesting things. <laughs> that's easy. Th that's the problem. Like it, it, I feel like the things that I'm saying are like not useful in any way. Um, one thing that he does that I think is useful is like yeah, he he just gave like these again like these extremely relatable concrete examples of, to demonstrate the kinds of things that he was he was talking about and like the audience was like totally obsessed um so yeah i don't know yeah i mean i think that's i think there is something there is a lot there that that people can learn and develop so i don't think it's just like have a good personality <laughs> it's a personality psychologist so you know, maybe that's somewhat relevant but right so one way to think of it is like you're you're trying to get into the mind of the audience. I mean that's really it's so important in writing and in talking to to like have mm -hmm. empathy for your audience, mm -hmm. to to think about things from their perspective and and two questions to ask are like where are they coming from and where do I want them to go with? So the the where are they coming from is like what knowledge do they have? What assumptions do they have? And and that's where I think this idea of like giving compelling examples yeah is really helpful it's it's especially helpful for a broader audience where they won't be already up to speed on the technical stuff but even for a very focused audience like people appreciate that because even the stuff that they kind of know that you know like having a compelling and so i think if you know if you're studying everyday phenomena that lends itself super well to examples but i think also like even when i see really sort of specific obscure obscure but really you know really sort of things that are further from everyday human experience when i see someone give a, an animal study talk or i get see someone give a cognero talk or something you know people will do things like they'll walk through the procedure from a participant's perspective right. from the mouse's things perspective. like that yeah. like what what was it you know what was the mouse seeing and doing you know or or whatever um to sort of like so take what people you know that's a way to bring people in. And then, you know, the other thing that I think about when I'm preparing, especially a longer talk, although any talk, and this is very similar to teaching, is like, what do I want them to take away from this? Um, like, you know, and and I think it's important to have a very, like, small number of take-homes, two or three at most. Yeah, right. And then think about the structure of your talk or if you're teaching the structure of your lecture as, like, all the stuff should be sort of bringing them in the, those directions. Um, and so, you know, I've given better talks and worse talks and, and where they've really resonated, I feel like it is like, 
you know, my, at least my sense, and sometimes people will tell me this, but, but you know, if I feel good about a talk, at least it's because I feel like, oh, they, they, they're walking away and 24 hours later, if someone says, what was Sanjay's talk about? They're, they're going to be able to answer that uh, off, off the top of their head. They're not going to be like, well, he talked about this thing and he talked about this other thing, which I've given those kind of talks yeah. as well, for sure. Yeah. Um, what do you guys think about flashiness, particularly in terms of like slides and, th- and things like that? Like, I feel like recently I've seen talks that go from, you know, white background, black font, extremely simple no transitions, like a few words on each slide to like slides where they must be, they must have like professional animators creating these, mm-hmm. um, these like images and visualizations and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, do you guys have preferences? I that think dimension? that this might relate to what Sanjay just said, where like, if your goal is that you want people to be able to say what your talk was about 24 hours later, then I think the simple approach is actually better but if you want people to walk out of the room being like, whoa, I just experienced something amazing, <laughs> then uh-huh. the like more sophisticated stuff is better. But I find huge individual differences. So like we were just at the Metascience conference, Alexa and I, a few months ago, and yeah. I feel like there was a pretty big range. I mean, there was one speaker didn't use slides at all, at yeah. least one. And then some of them, yeah, you just felt like you were just at a multimedia experience where you should have been wearing yeah. like x-ray or whatever 3D go- glasses. Um, <laughs> And some people were really impressed by the, the like really amazing technology or what I don't know what the right <laughs> I don't even know what words to use. Yeah, I, I've never seen talks like that before, but my reaction was mixed. Like there were some people where I was like, whoever you got to do these animations or however you did this, like you found a way to visualize this information that is like very effective. Like I understand this way better than I would have if you had done this different way or at least that was the impression that I got that the technology like really aided especially when people there were a lot of people who were like talking about networks and things like that and there were some people who I thought use that like really effectively and then there were other people where I was like you're just this is just flash for flash's sake and I have a bit of like a cringe reaction to like flashiness in general so like for those people it sort of took away from from their talk a bit especially because I didn't feel like the substance always matched the like flashiness but there are some yeah. cases where I think that sophistication with like visualization and stuff like that really can go a long way. Yeah. I think the moderator I mean, it, is it, amount of information. Like I think if you're presenting few things, then having really good visualization and graphic, I think present few things is always a good good advice. Right. And then I present think I, people things, like me won't advice. be people like me won't be put off by the flashiness or the sophistication if you stick to the present few things. I think even even old like backwards thinking people like me will still appreciate the the like sophisticatedness of it but it's when it's sophisticated and it's too much stuff then i'm like you right. just like showered me with all this like flashy stuff and i feel like i need to go take a shower <laughs> yeah i i feel like that for me the question is less like more or less stuff and and more like how is it serving where this is going right and it, it reminds me you know i think about music right that there are some brilliant musicians who it's just them and their guitar. And then there are other brilliant musicians where it's layered and orchestrated and there's, you know, 50 people on stage and whatever. And likewise, there's some terrible musicians that it's just them and their guitar. And there's some terrible musicians where it's like a million instruments uh, not doing anything interesting. And, you know, so like doing what sir, and then also like the, the musicians that are really brilliant at them and their guitar, you know, a lot of them, like, they should stick to that. That's, they, they you know, and, and of course you see musicians change and whatever, and so you should explore too, but, like, if you're really, if you're able to be really effective with a very spare presentation and that actually serves the message and the content, then do that. And if you're able to have some really glitzy multimedia that people remember not because of the superficial flash, but because it, it really helps them get a concept, that that's important for them then 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 do that and i think people sometimes get hung up on the like oh i saw this great glitzy presentation so i'm going to try to do that where they're they're modeling not the this was an effective way to convey an idea but just like oh wow i saw flashing lights and you know cool animations and whatever Mm -hmm. and and you know 
they're sort of um, aping the form and not the the, the full thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, one thing that also just in terms of like, regardless of what kind, you know, this is also this is kind of a music analogy. Like in music, you think about dynamics, yeah, right. Like, that like a, a a song that's all at one volume is much less interesting. And so within a presentation, thinking about the rhythm and the dynamics of it, where, you know, one thing that can be really powerful is if you have a presentation with slides, is that at key moments where this works is to have a black slide, where all of a sudden this focus is back on you as the speaker. So people have been looking Mm -hmm. at your slides, they've been absorbing this complex information, and then where it's going to be your voice and where that's really the focus now now it's back on me and i'm going to interpret i'm going to tell you or i'm going to tell you a story or something like that um you can you know so that that can be in terms of slides and presentations that you have that dynamics that can just be you know in terms of you've got all slides but you're sort of changing the busyness or the amount of information or the the way you present it or something I think those presentations are more, and again, it's where you're using that, not just like, I'm going to change the pace to keep people awake, but rather like, I'm going to change the pace to serve the delivery and to, to make it sort of more, get across better. Mm-hmm. So something, this is another thing that uh, is, especially like for longer talks, um, it's like sort of surprising that to, I think when you first start giving them that you're so nervous and amped up but something that's I think that I've discovered is really important is like keeping your energy for 45 minutes through a talk huh. do you do you experience that where like have you be, have you ever been told or have you ever seen a talk where like the person like maybe starts off like seeming really enthusiastic and then around the middle they're just their their voice has stopped moving and they're they're just seeming less energetic and they're kind of doing this no I feel like I've seen the opposite I've seen people who take a while to get into it but I don't know I don't for me I feel like the adrenaline keeps me going and me I too. don't remember seeing a talk where I thought the speaker visibly lost energy but I might be misremembering okay. it's sort of like I mean yeah I have the experience of sometimes dreading giving a talk because I feel like I don't have very much energy and I'm like really not in the mood to give a talk and it's continually amazing to me how like having the audience just like yeah transforms i it can be like it's temporary right like it's while i'm giving the talk i'll be like yeah the adrenaline will make me super energetic and i i think that i seem really like enthusiastic and into it and then afterwards i'll be like again um Okay, maybe that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, or I don't know if it's actually true, but I feel like I I need to like remind myself in the middle of a talk. That's interesting. Um, to to sort of make sure that I'm still doing the performance part of the performance, and that mm-hmm. that I haven't just like drifted into sort of huh. talking. Do you guys time. get outside your head during your talk? I I don't. Like even if I there was no. something I should remind myself of during the talk, I can't step outside the talk and observe or like reflect on how it's going no yeah me neither well i so so i actually i got this advice from someone else that for a longer talk like a job talk length talk that i actually have it in my notes like a reminder like be energetic halfway through your talk just because i won't i won't think of that i won't i won't realize in the moment i mean i think i do a little bit more now than i used to just because i've given enough talks and and you know so maybe a little bit i can like think outside my head but it's yeah it's still very very limited in those settings because it's just such a cognitive load just to be giving a talk in front of an audience yeah i I think the hardest for me is the first minute and like because you don't have the audience yet i mean they're physically there but you're not engaging with them yet and so for me the energy ramps up over the first few minutes and also the first minute, I like one one thing I would always recommend is memorizing at least the first line of your talk and maybe the first couple of lines because you feel so awkward. You're like, now yeah. I am going to speak. I'm speaking yeah. now. Like, hello. <laughs> that really Actually, unnatural. that is um, something that, like, I think I wish I had more concrete guidance on and, like, I should give this guidance if I get it to my grad students and things like that. But, like, the very first thing you say, 
Um, like people will often like introduce themselves or whatever, but that's often the most awkward part, right? It's like, you haven't even gotten quite to your talk yet. You know, you're not like mm-hmm. reading your title or whatever you're doing, saying as the first line of your talk, but you're just like saying like, Hey, what's up? <laughs> that part is super yeah. awkward. I mean, it's, it's a bit like when you write a journal article, how the first paragraph is often one, one of the harder paragraphs to write and two, it's often best left until the end when you, cause you have to have all the stuff in your head to sort of come up with a way to get into it. But I think the other thing is like, yeah, some, I, I think often like you feel like you have to sort of set up reason, but often just someone that jumps right into it is totally fine and mm-hmm, can work. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, another thing I'd say even beyond memorizing the first couple of lines, um, especially for like a job talk or the first time you've done this, is to actually write. So so I wouldn't recommend anybody. I wouldn't, if you if this is valuable to you, sure, go ahead and write a whole talk. But I think for, for those talks, if you write the first page or two and you practice delivering the first page or two and you just have it there, even if you don't actually look at it, to me, this is something, and I still do this for longer talks sometimes, but it's like, it's just it's like a security it's like Samin stuffed animals it's like a security (laughs) thing that like I'm so nervous but I I've like I've thought about how I'm gonna get started and I have it written down so the part of me that's like shit what if you forget what if you like you know Mm -hmm. freeze is like I have this thing I can look at and then like you know which I never do but if I did like and then once you get going you're you're sort of you're cruising and and you've got momentum but yeah, that's a really important start, I think. Mm-hmm. So do you, maybe the last thing we should talk about before we wrap up the episode is, have either of you ever given a public talk, like a, a TED talk, a pub talk, a, a, some kind of a, I mean, teaching is kind of this, but not really, like about your research or about the field? I've given a pub talk, like a, it was called like Beer on Tap at a brewery in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. That was really fun. You get totally different kinds of questions. But yeah, I mean, I think it's actually not as different as we think it is, mostly because I think when we're giving talks to scientific audiences, we assume they know too much. So actually, I think we should give more talks as if they were public talks. Like, unless you're talking just to your brown bag group in your department, they already know the specific jargon of your research because they've heard six other people from your lab give talks in the last year. Almost any other audience. Like, if you're studying the big five, you should explain what the big five are. If you're studying elaboration likelihood model you should explain what that is even though obviously it seems like everyone in social personality should know both of those things so it's not that different if you give a public talk it's just a little bit more of that but it's stuff we should be doing anyway Um, yeah at least for if you study things that non-scientists think about like self-knowledge or personality or narcissism was one of the topics of my talk and they they loved that one Uh uh-huh yeah yeah i rarely have the experience maybe you guys feel differently that um that a speaker is dumbing things down too much like yeah. I'm rarely like yeah I'm like way ahead of you like can you please speed up or like you know you're spending way too much time on this thing I think just because I often find it interesting for people to just talk about the basics to some degree um I am curious like so Sanjay earlier you were talking about like take-home messages and things like that and maybe there isn't that much conflict here really but I'm wondering if you guys give talks to like a broader audience or the public or a non-psychology audience um is there do you feel like a tension between being like precise and accurate and being sort of like here's like a clear satisfying take-home yeah i so i haven't i I have to say i've probably it's been quite a while since i've given a like a public general audience talk and i haven't done that many of them um but you know i think like part of sometimes part of the goal is to like entertain people and that's that's okay like that can be part of it that shouldn't be all of it obviously Mm -hmm. but that's part of it and so if people like had a good time that's good um you know i think the the, i mean this is one of the really things that makes it challenging in a fun way or fun in a challenging way one of those things is like thinking about how to come up with a take home that you feel scientifically like you can stand by and so you know it's complicated can be like Uh, I mean, obviously, like, that's not enough and that's not satisfying, but, like, this stuff's more complicated than you thought Um, can be a variety of a Mm -hmm. take-home. Or just, like, we're discovering cool things and this is a cool area of study. Or these are, like, kind of themes more than specific take-homes, but I think that if you you break out of the shell of, like, 
I have to tell people something. And I think in in some parts of psychology we're more tempted than others. Like I assume, you know, my colleagues that do like mouse stuff aren't thinking like they're going to tell somebody how to live their life differently. I think we're sometimes tempted to in social and personality. And I think like thinking broader than that as a take home, that the sort of like tidy little business school fable kind of take home isn't the only kind of take home that you can come up with. Yeah. And I actually think that it's complicated take home is super, super important. So like, especially if you're talking about personality or self-knowledge or things like where where there are so many bullshit self-help and like other things out there. So like, yeah, I can think of one or two of a couple of public lectures I've given. And and I do think what I was trying to get across was that if someone's selling you something about self-knowledge that has a clear answer, then they're probably full of shit. And I would feel pretty good (laughs) if I changed people's minds about that. If they came out thinking, oh, maybe I shouldn't believe those like flashy things I'm reading about. Like if I, if I raise my kid this way, they'll have this personality. Or if I just do this, then that'll change a narcissist into a non-narcissist or whatever (laughs) like yeah right cool well i think uh i think that's a i think this is a good spot to end on um do you do you two agree sure should we wrap up okay (laughs) awesome cool well thank you listeners for listening to the black goat we will talk to you next time